Nehemiah chapter 4 is where you need to turn in your Bibles tonight for our Bible study. A broken window, a broken guitar pick, and broken lives. You know, that says it all. Interestingly, because we're studying chapter 4 of Nehemiah, and I'm calling this little section, Fighting the Enemy of Discouragement. Can some of you relate to that? Probably all of us can. Let's pray. Father, we do, in a spirit of worship, in an attitude of praise and submission, we allow you to work on our hearts during the next several minutes that we're together. Do the necessary things, Lord, that are lacking, add to them, are there that need to be extracted and excised, do that as well. However long ago, Lord, for some months perhaps, maybe for others, years or decades, we made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And in effect, we said, here, Lord, take the keys, you drive. Here's the pink slip, you own me. So, Lord, we're at your disposal to do your bidding. Bless the time that we're together, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, expecting to be not treated badly because you're a good person is like expecting an angry bull not to attack you because you're a vegetarian. <laughs> we know life doesn't work that way, don't we? We know that good things happen to bad people as well as bad things happen to good people. And bad things happen to God's people as well. This last Friday, I was doing a wedding for a good friend back in Albuquerque. Flew in Friday to do the wedding, flew out Saturday back here. It was at the church where I previously pastored. They were all excited. This wedding had been planned for months. And uh, I remember getting the phone call, would you do the wedding? Sure, love to do it. A lot of expense. And it was to be out in this park that we have uh, built out there. It's a five-acre park. It's part of the church property. And uh, they were going to have the wedding there under a nice canopy and then move the reception over to this fountain and uh, area by our bookstore and coffee shop. And it was all planned, and it was a beautiful morning until about 11 o'clock, and the wind started kicking up. And it got up to about 30 miles an hour. And they expect, expected higher gusts in the afternoon. So it's no fun when you spend money and plan and everybody flies in from all over the country and you got it just right, but the unexpected happens. It's windy. And the bride was crushed. She was so disappointed. She went to her dad in tears. This is the worst thing that could happen. And of course, being the dad, he said, look, in a few hours, you're going to have a ring on your finger and you're out of here. You're married. And last time I checked, that's the purpose of a wedding, to get you married. Well, that didn't help her out a whole lot. She still wanted a perfect wedding. It's interesting also the Lord was faithful because as we started, there was a lull. And at one point, it was completely calm. And seriously, as I pronounced them husband and wife, and they turned around, the wind kicked right up again and blew all evening. So the Lord was faithful to us. Now, Nehemiah has started on a bold and brilliant endeavor. He's prayed because he heard about what's going on in Jerusalem. There's a need there. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. After a prayer comes his plan. He goes before the king. He lays all out what he needs. He gets permission from the king to go. And he builds momentum as he goes because he gets to Jerusalem and doesn't really tell anybody what's going on. Finally, after perusing the walls, he understands what he needs to take next as far as the steps. He shares his vision, rallies people behind them. The people, it said, had a mind to work. And it was awesome. Until chapter 4. And that's when the snags hit. That's when the angry bull attacks the vegetarian in chapter 4. Because there are problems from the outside 
There are problems from the inside. Outside, the enemies come. Inside, there's discouragement in the camp. We covered the first two of those last time we met over this in Nehemiah. And tonight, we look at the third. But let me just draw your attention to verse 10. And if you will just follow along in your Bibles, let's read to the rest of the chapter till it ends. Then Judah said, verse 10, Nehemiah 4, The strength of the laborers is failing And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything until we come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt there came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, Do not fear or do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses." And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their counsel to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, wore the armor. The leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried the burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work here is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Therefore, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night And a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our, uh, took off our clothes except that everyone took them off for washing. The paragraph that we began with in verse 10 introduces us to the predicament, the problem. The problem is that people were discouraged within the camp of Judah. Oh, there's so much rubbish. There's so much work to do, and we're not able to finish the work. Now, a little bit before this, they said, we're with you, Nehemiah. The people had a mind to work. They were committed to work, but now they see the immensity of the job, and they're discouraged. They say, there's no way we're going to do it. There's too much trash that we can't finish the job. Life is so much like that. It's filled with discouragement. If you expect that life every day, just like they say on some Christian television networks, is going to be a miracle a day and a song of celebration all the time, we'll see you for counseling one of these days soon. (laughs) It's unrealistic to think that. There are some times we sing in the minor key, not just songs of celebration. Discouragement arises. Back in 1965, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book based on a phrase he coined. He called it spiritual depression. Spiritual depression. Of all of the books he wrote, he was a preacher, by the way, at the great Westminster Chapel over in England, London, England. He was the successor to G. Campbell Morgan. And um, this pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was a medical doctor. And he observed patients and how they react to life. 
But he wrote this book for believers called Spiritual Depression. And of all of the writings he released, it was his most popular book. It was popular because people relate to it. You and I relate to it. You and I relate to times that we're not always singing way up here, but way down here, if at all. Spiritual depression. That's why, by the way, we love the book of Psalms. Because when we read the book of Psalms, we go, I relate to this guy. David was up here one moment and in the same Psalm, way down here. Up and down. Those are the experiences of life. And so we read the Psalms and we think, hallelujah, there's somebody just like me in the Bible. And his name was David. The ancients used to call discouragement that leads to depression the dark evening of the soul. And they described it as that time where the zest of life leaves, where little tasks seems like monumental demands, where we just can't make it through a day, spiritual energy is lost. One author describes this condition by saying, a miserable and wretched experience that will leave you exhausted, uninvolved, and in deep, hopeless despair. There seems to be absolutely nowhere to turn and not one single thing you can do to escape these horrible feelings. You feel doomed, trapped at the end of your rope. It's awful. And Christians are not immune from this. If you think, well, that's before I was a Christian. Now that I'm a Christian, I'm always going to smile. I'm always going to go, woohoo, wee-hee. Then we'll see you for counseling very soon, one of these days. As Jesus said, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. These are common experiences of life. And I know there was a book out there, a booklet several years ago called Four Spiritual Laws. You remember it? It was a great witnessing tool put out by Bill Bright. I think we should write one called Four Spiritual Flaws. And one of the first flaws would be if you are a Christian, you are immune from discouragement and depression. That's a flaw. That's wrong thinking. And again, I would commend you to the book of Psalms. Well, let's look at our text. There are a couple of reasons that these snags have happened. Two reasons that have brought on a discouragement within the camp that makes them say, we're done, we can't finish it up, let's just give up. Reason number one, the taunts of the enemies. Let's call them the taunts of the unbelievers. You know these guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, they've appeared a couple of times couple chapters ago, the beginning of chapter 4. Now they're back organizing terrorist activity to go through the camp and bring fear to the people who are living in Jerusalem. Now these rural Jews who lived close enough to hear the taunts day and night go to Jerusalem and say, Hey, let us tell you what we heard them say. Listen to their plot. Here's their plan. So because these rural Jews who lived closer to the people of Samaria than the Jerusalemites, they heard this day in and day out, time after time, ten times. When you're around that kind of negativity for a long period of time, it'll rub off eventually. It can alter and reprogram the way you think and the way you believe. So if you're prone to discouragement and people like this are around your life, try your best not to hang around them. Get away from them. You go, oh, but I'm married to one. (laughs) Then let me just say, we need to see you for counseling very, very soon. Both of you. Look back in verse 2, would you? This is Sanballat, one of the enemies, one of the mockers who came and said, what are you guys doing building these walls? And he, Sanballat, spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? 
stones that are burned. That's what the enemy said. Now go back to our text in verse 10. Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. There is so much rubbish that we're not able to build the walls. Judah has heard this negativity for so long, they're starting to believe the lies of the enemy. The stones, the building materials are now called rubbish. Now, no doubt there was rubbish there that needed to be taken out. But there was material, raw material to be used for building. And now what they saw once as building materials with great zeal and joy is just rubbish. Well, you and I live in a world where you hear on a daily basis, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, negativity. Remember Jesus gave us an order. He says, very simple, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every one, every person. Now, we may get excited about that. They're not all that excited about that. In fact, as soon as you open your mouth to say, I've got good news, they'll say, you narrow-minded bigot. You are the reason there are problems in this country. It's all because of you. And you'll be scowled and scorned and ridiculed and persecuted. People will laugh at you. They'll smirk at you when you carry a Bible. They may want to run you off the road if you have a bumper sticker that says Jesus loves you. I don't know. There'll be persecution. That could cause discouragement. Lord, I want to build the wall. I want to follow you. And all of this happens. And, and when it happens enough, you might feel a little bit like Linus in the... Uh, Peanuts cartoon, he says to Charlie Brown, I love mankind. It's the people I can't stand. <laughs> I bet some of these workers were feeling that way. Then look again in verse 10. It's not only the taunts of the unbelievers. It's the task that they're called to do. It seems so big, so immense, so immeasurable, so impossible. Judah said the strength of the laborers is failing. There is so much rubbish, we are not able to build the wall. The job is too big, our strength is too small. Have you ever worked on something? Plans have been made. You had energy when you entered the task. You go for it. But things happen. Life happens. There are setbacks. The work gets stopped. The building department comes in. The courts step in. Whatever it might be. That causes the project, the goal, the vision to get killed. It says in Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Gung-ho, you're ready to go. And then Sanballat comes in and Tobiah and they try to pull permits and say, this is illegal. We're going to tell the king and, well, we got permission from the king and, well, we're going to attack you then. And they can't attack him because they have permission from the king. Well, then we'll just terrorize you by sending in people to kill you everywhere you turn. All of this discouragement as they're trying to do the work of God. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So it's not just the taunts of the unbelievers. It's the task now that because of setback seems too big. Job is too big. Our strength is too small. We quit. We can't do it. There was a guy, you know him well. His name was Elijah. What a bold guy. What a man of faith. He's an example of faith so much that James says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He was the guy who by faith commanded the heavens to stop and the rain stopped for three and a half years. Well, what a great victory he had on Mount Carmel. He was up there. There were prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. And this lone ranger of a prophet stood up and challenged them all and miraculously calls fire down from heaven and it licks up the sacrifice, the water that was on the stones. The prophets of Baal are taken down to the brook Kishon. They're killed. And then we get to the very next chapter of the Bible and we see the same bold prophet. Not standing on Mount Carmel with a sword and full of faith, but running from a chick. No offense, but a woman called Jezebel who threatened him. Now, wait a minute. He's had hundreds of prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. 
He's had threats from the king over and over again. And by faith, he's bold and he stands up. And now this gal named Jezebel threatens his life. And so he runs away down to Mount Sinai, crawls under a bush and says, I want to die now, God. I quit. And we wonder, is this the same dude? Man of faith on Mount Carmel, man of woe on Mount Sinai. What happened to this guy? I think unfulfilled expectations. Maybe unrealistic expectations. The way I figure it, Elijah must have thought that what's going to happen is when God brings that fire down from heaven and destroys this and we kill the prophets of Baal, there is going to be a national revival. It's going to break out. This is the next move of God in Israel. Didn't happen. The king did not repent. The queen did not repent. The people did not repent. Some of them did, but there wasn't the national kind of turning. And there it is, hope deferred. His hope was deferred. It made his heart sick. The task now seems too big. And the discouragement set in. Sometimes, as believers, we have unrealistic expectations that God didn't fulfill. Now, God never said he would, but we just thought he did. Or maybe somebody fed us a line somewhere. Um, maybe you're a victim of certain Christian television programs. And I, I use the term very seriously because I think a lot have been victimized by false doctrine that is spread. And uh, maybe you've listened to the shows and they've said, expect your daily miracle. Now, last time I checked, a miracle isn't the sunrise and the sunset and a baby being born and all those little things. A miracle is a, a shift in the natural order. You know, people walking on water, that's miraculous. And they say, expect that. Expect healing of any sort and expect your miracle on a daily basis. If you live that way, I'm not saying I'm ditzing faith, true faith, authentic faith. But to have those unrealistic expectations is going to leave you like Elijah. I've had enough. Just take my life. I want to read you something interesting. It's from Religion Watch a few years back. That's a paper that is put out. It says, Pentecostals have three times more likely, are three times more likely than other Christians to experience major depression. According to the Vanderbilt University study, the overall group, that they studied, 2,850 North Carolinians in a six-month period experienced serious depression at a rate of 1.7%, whereas the rate among Pentecostals was 5.4%. Researchers surmise that the higher rate may be partly because people who are already depressed are attracted to Pentecostalism's emphasis on spiritual and physical healing. So... They'll go to the meeting, they'll tune in, they'll want their daily miracle. I demand, I claim healing right now in Jesus' name. Brother, walk away, it's going to happen. Just trust that it's happened. And if it doesn't happen, then it's either because that guy didn't have enough faith or I'm walking in sin because God's perfect. Why would he allow that to happen? I remember talking to a guy after a service. He walked up on crutches. He had broken his leg. I heard the story. I said, Frank, I'm so sorry to hear about your broken leg. I'd like to pray for you. He goes, it's not broken. <laughs> I said, Frank, you're using crutches. He goes, it's not broken. I believe by faith that I'm healed. I said, oh, really? God has healed you? It's already done. He said, I've claimed it. I'm healed. And I said, Frank, would you do me a favor? Don't tell anybody that God healed you. He says, why? I said, Frank, they're going to think your God does pretty crummy work if you call that a healing. Pray for it, live by faith, but then take what God gives you. Otherwise, you're going to, we'll see you in counseling this week very, very soon. <laughs> it says there's so much rubbish, so much garbage. Now, do you remember when we talked about Jerusalem we said that there were walls that surrounded There were different gates around it. Uh, there was the east gate by the temple. And there was that gate called the 
rubbish gate, the dung gate. It's where the rubbish, the garbage of the city was taken out. You can't build a city with trash. You build a city with stones and mortar and hard work. If there is rubbish, you take it out the gate and you dispose of it. Now, I believe that every person in every ministry has rubbish that needs to be taken out. And every church and every person needs a dung gate, so to speak. There's stuff that just you, you got to get rid of. You know, it could be personal habits. It could be personal attitudes, practices, things you've developed over time where God, the Holy Spirit, I hope every time we get together and open the Bible, God convicts us of something and says, you need to change that. You need to repent of that. That is something I want to work on. This is something I want to increase. Unless that is happening, there's not growth. It's just happened a long time ago, but you're not growing now. There needs to be constant growth. But then in an organization, in a church setting, we need to have the dung gate. We've got to take certain things out and say, you know, that worked for a while, but now it's rubbish. It could be an attitude. You see, organizations, especially Christian organizations, over time lose sight of the organism of the body of Christ and get so attached to the organization. Let's organize the organism. Now, I think we should organize the organism to a degree. If you don't, you'll have a blob. Every organism needs to be organized or it'll just ooze everywhere. But if you overstructure and overorganize, you can actually quench, I believe, the Holy Spirit. So what might have worked at one time, we've always done it that way. This is how I answer it. So what? What does that mean? Well, just we've always done it that way. Okay, maybe you've done it wrong. Is it in the Bible? If it is, we'll do what's in the Bible. If it's not, who cares? If it's an old paradigm, an old system, it could be in the way. Let's take it out the dungate. So there won't be so much rubbish, but just stones to work with. Now, after the problem, we get the plan. Verse 13. Therefore, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and for your houses. In their plan, they did a few things. Number one, they secured the breaches. There were holes in the wall. They were lower than some of the other walls that were much higher. And those were the vulnerable access points. If the enemy is going to come in, he's going to find the, the breaches in the wall where the stones are a little bit lower and they can crawl over a lot easier. So he stations men, soldiers, and with them, families who lived in the area. They would be very conscientious about protecting that part of the wall as they were conscientious about building that part of the wall, you remember a couple chapters back, because they live there. They have a vested interest in its safety because of the proximity to where they lived. And I think there's a principle here. There are in any church, this one notwithstanding, areas of ministry that you live closer to, that are just closer to home for you, you feel more passionate about than others. I remember when we tried to get people to work uh, in the nursery and uh, back in Albuquerque, and I remember we talked to the uh, over-50s group. We called them the Silver Saints. And we had a few of the silver saints that wanted to get involved, but most of them said, you know what? I've raised kids. I've raised grandkids. I've worked in the nursery during my kids and my grandkids. And now I'm working on great grandkids. And I just, I'm not passionate about building that part of the wall. And you know, that's okay. I understand that. I don't think they necessarily all need to do that. But there is something that one would feel more passionate about because it's closer to home than others. A businessman might say, well, I struggle with Christian ethics in the business world. I'd like to get together with a group of business professionals and have discipleship over 
Christ in the marketplace. Another might be a doctor who says, I'd love to give a month of my time a year to the mission field. And I want to organize and build the wall over that. It's closer to where I live. And in any ministry, here in this church, there's breaches in the wall. And that's one of the things we're trying to do in this first year, year and a half, couple years of ministry is find out what parts of the infrastructure need to be built. We need helpers, people who will volunteer in a variety of areas. Then look at verse 14. They encourage the people. He said, don't fear, right? Don't be afraid. In other words, fear is not welcomed here. Did you know that fear is contagious? By the way, faith is contagious too. Get around somebody of great faith and it will it'll catch on. Get around somebody fearful and it'll catch on. That's why back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God said, before you go to battle, I want your officers to approach the army men and say, okay, any of you fellows here too scared to go to battle? Get out. That was the first line of separation was fear. Because you don't want people out on the battlefield fighting the battle who are scared to be there. That, can, that fear will be contagious and spread to others who are trying to fight the battle. I love the story of Gideon fighting the Midianites. He's out there in the valley. He has 32,000 men on his side because he made a call to arms. He issued anybody who wants to fight the Lord's battle. 32,000 came. He thought, this is great. Only problem is there were 135,000 of the enemy. To make matters worse, God came to him and said, Gideon, you have too many men for me to give you victory. Because if I give victory to 32,000 men, you're going to go home bragging. Aren't we a great army? We're amazing. We're like so amazing. So I want to stack the odds so much that nobody will be able to say I'm pretty cool. But wow, what a great God. So he said, Gideon, you know the rules. Go to the army and say, whoever is fearful and afraid, go home. That's Deuteronomy 20. So he thought, okay, got to do It's in the Bible. Goes up to the army, whoever's afraid, go home. 22,000 left. <laughs> and he thought, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have underlined that verse in my Bible. But they left. Now there's 10,000 left. God got him down to 300 against 135,000 and then gave him the victory. But fear can be contagious. So Nehemiah says, don't be afraid. He's encouraging the people. Fear has no place here. If you're scared to do this, if you're a little bit queasy, then get out of the army. I want to know those who are with me and will be strong to the very end. I, uh, I, I love to look back. I think about when I moved from here 20 some years ago to New Mexico to start a church. And I called friends from here, and I begged them to come with me. Well, I don't feel led. You know, I just, it's not what I'm called to do. And, you know, I'll pray about it, bro. And it never happened. And I called everybody to get help. Nobody wanted to come. But when the church grew, and we had a staff, and we had a budget, and we had a paycheck, all sorts of people felt called into the ministry because the fear factor was low. There was no risk involved. So Nehemiah says, if you're afraid, go home. Then he says something great. He says, remember the Lord, great and awesome. Don't be afraid. Align yourself with God and with his purposes. Remember the Lord. They've been looking at the rubbish. He says, get your eyes on the Redeemer. Get your eyes off the trash and onto the true and living, awesome God. Remember the Lord. Joshua was going out to battle as the captain of the army, Joshua chapter 5. As he's getting ready for the battle, he meets a strange character called the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5. And Joshua grabs his sword and says, are you for us or against us? And the commander of the Lord's army, who is, I believe, either an angel or a theophany, Jesus in the Old Testament. When Joshua said, are you for us or against us? I love the answer. He said, no. But as the commander of the Lord's army, I'm here to do his bidding. In other words, the issue, Joshua, isn't, it, isn't am I on your side? The issue is, are you on my side? 
Because I'm fighting this battle. This is the Lord's battle, not yours. I hope you're on his side. And when he realized, ooh, God's fighting this battle, he took off his shoes, he bowed, and he worshipped. He recognized, this isn't my battle. I need to let the Lord fight his stuff. Align yourself with the Lord. And I tell you what, Joshua needed to do that, didn't he? Because in a couple of chapters from there, he's going to do something that looks stupid. Imagine going to your army and saying, here's the plan. Here's the battle plan, army. We're going to march around the city and blow horns. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then we're going to attack, right? No, 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 no. We're going to go to bed that night. Then the next day, we're going to get up, march around the city, and blow horns. Wow, great. We'll get their attention. They don't know we're there. And then we attack, right? No, we do that for seven days. Wow, what a great plan. So suspenseful. Yeah. And then we're going to march around the seventh day seven times, and we're going to blow the horns. Yeah, and then we're going to attack. No, we're going to step back. And the walls are going to fall down. And don't you think the army looked at him and said, this is absolutely crazy. To which Joshua would have said, you're absolutely right. And if I wouldn't have had a meeting before this battle with the commander of the Lord's army, I couldn't do this. But I met with God and he told me it's his battle that I should be on his side. So let's go. Don't be afraid. Align yourself with God and his purposes. And then let's go on where it says in verse 15. Oh, no, 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 no. Back in 14. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. You remember the movie Braveheart? Or Patriot? The heroes in those movies aren't really fighting against their enemies as much as they're fighting for their families. Now, this is an interesting thing, and, and we don't have enough time, but here you've got this great man of God saying, God is good. God is great. We trust him. We live by faith. Now, get your sword out. We're going to war. Um. When I was in Israel several years ago, a friend of mine was graduating from the army. It was his induction ceremony. And the army men, their ritual was to crawl through and, and hike up the mountains of Judea to this point. It would take them all day long. It was their final exercise. They would rendezvous on top of the hill where their friends and families would be there, a torchlight ceremony, band would play, celebration. And they'd be inducted and sworn in in a public ceremony to defend the borders of Israel against her hundred million enemies all around. And it was a moving ceremony because I watched something I had never seen in any, any American military campaign. On one table was a stack of guns and the other table was a stack of Bibles. And they would give the soldier each a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. And read to them the book of Joshua. This is the land the Lord thy God has given thee. Take it. Be strong. Trust him. And it was very reminiscent of this situation here with Nehemiah, who says, go out and fight, but trust the Lord as you go. So align yourself with God's purposes. Don't be afraid. Banish fear. Fight for your families. Verse 15. Now here's the program. After the predicament came the plan. Now let's see what they did with it. Let's see the outcome. Verse 15. And it happened. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their counsel to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. You hear that? The enemies against them, they don't run away. They don't wait for a more convenient time. They return to the very job that they became discouraged at, even though there's enemies around them and they think in the midst of them. But they've been Bolstered in their faith. Trust God. Get your sword. Let's fight. Don't be afraid. They returned back to the wall. Now, what if some of the soldiers would have said, well, Nehemiah, uh, it's just a little too controversial to be building this wall here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to wait till all the dust settles, and then I'll be back. I wouldn't have worked. That'd be a cowardly thing to do. We need you now. And yet, it's funny, 
because a lot of times Christians will say that whenever there's problems in a church. Oh, it's just sort of controversial right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave and I'll wait for the dust to settle and maybe I'll be back. Coward. Stick with it. Put your shoulder to the task. Christians, we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It would be an interesting study, actually, to follow the migratory patterns of Orange County Christians. <laughs> it's an odd bird where commitment is measured in, in microseconds instead of long, hard, dark periods of time. They return to the work. In verse 16, so it it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at the construction while the other half held spears, shields, bows, wore armor, and the leaders were behind the house of Judah. Those who built the wall are on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked a construction and with another hand they held a weapon. If you've been to Israel, you know that they live like this even today. If they build a house, there are soldiers who are watching the community lest somebody would lob bombs on the construction project. There's people out there with, with uh, machine guns protecting the endeavor. Uh, you've seen school children go on field trips. They always have at least two armed guards with machine guns to watch those kids when they go on field trips. In any community, it's building code. You have to have at least one bomb shelter for so many houses that go in a neighborhood. That's just life. They've learned to live this way. You're always on guard, always on the lookout. In one hand, sword. The other hand, the trowel. This is where Charles Spurgeon, by the way, was inspired for his church magazine. He called it the sword and the trowel. He said, let's document in our church life fighting sin, fighting the enemy on one hand, and building the kingdom of God, laboring for the Lord on the other hand. So, two hands, one to build, one to fight. The church needs both. We need builders. We need fighters. And sometimes we do them at the same time. We carry a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. Anybody who's ever been on any staff that I've had knows that you better wear at least several hats at one time. Well, I'm called to do this. This is my name and my title. Well, you actually see that piece of trash? You had to pick that up. That toilet needs to be cleaned. Let's do it. You're called to counsel today. You might be called to weld something tomorrow. Sword, trowel, fight, build, all at the same time. Now, what if somebody would have come up to the terrorists who said, well, I don't believe in fighting. I'm a pacifist. I like to reconcile. I'm going to walk up to Sandballot and I'm going to say, bro, we love you, man. You're one of us. We have some differences, man, but... Oh, no, that kind of vitriolic behavior wouldn't be tolerated. It would simply inspire more fear and further divide. And so that's why Nehemiah said, builders, yes, fighters also. Martin Luther said, a preacher must be both a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, he must defend and teach he must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. Martin Luther was a scrapper. He had to stand up against some pretty gnarly stuff, doctrinally, positionally, and in practice. Now, I want to end it, and I unfortunately closed the Bible a little bit too soon. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Therefore, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we labored in the work. Half of the men held up the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. They rallied together. Here's the idea. We're separated on this wall by distance and by geography, uh, if there is a battle, if we're attacked, or if there is a terrorist event in the city, we need to get the message out quickly to everyone to come and rally in one spot 
come together, get directions together, and march ahead. So you're going to listen to the trumpet. If you hear it, you come. As a church, one of the most important things we do, and don't minimize it, is what we're doing now. We're gathering together to get marching orders from the commander-in-chief through his word. We're being discipled and we're being instructed in the word. We're getting those marching orders and we go forward. It's the rallying call. You see, we're separated during the week. This huge wall separates us. Some of us work in that occupation or live on that side of the county and we're not together. So it's important that we gather together frequently As the writer of Hebrews says, don't avoid the assembling of yourselves together, but do it more frequently as you see the day approaching. We need to get together, be encouraged, because the wall separates us. We need constant gatherings and rallyings to hear the trumpet, the commands of the Lord. Otherwise, we will become a group of silo ministries that use the building like a community center. Can this group use it one night and this group use it another night? Or we'll become too segregated. We meet just in little small groups to, to minister to special interests. Now, now hear me well, please, um, about what I'm about to say. I, I, I feel passionately about it. I believe in both segregation and integration, spiritually speaking, in the church. I believe there is a time, and it's important to get singles together, And married people together. Now, wait. I know single people really want to get together bad. Okay. By the way, if you're single right now, raise your hand up. Okay. Look around quickly. Quickly look around. These are all the available people in church. Look at them. Okay. Married people want to get together. Women want to get together. Men want to get together, young and old. And those are important to minister to different age groups, different genders, etc. And I believe in it to a degree. To a degree. One of the healthiest and more important than that. I know there's a push in the church of it's all about small groups. Please don't minimize the gathering together of the whole church especially as the word of God is being taught. That's where you get your marching orders. In fact, the healthiest churches where small groups get together and speak about what they learned in the large group. Then it's fortifying it week by week by week. But you see, if we just break up in groups and don't follow the rallying call, what's going to happen is we're not going to be in touch with reality. You see, the singles get together and they go, I'm just so sad that I'm single. I want to be married. You need to be around some married people. You need, to, you need to get out more. And married people say, it's so hard to be married. I wish I were single again. You need to be around some single people for a while. That's the beautiful integration of all of these different groups in one body. Not separated all the time, but a rallying group. And then Nehemiah, here's the capstone, finally says, the Lord will fight for you. Do you believe that? Whatever whatever battle you're facing, that it's the Lord's battle and you need an encounter with the commander of the Lord's army because it's his battle. And if you let him fight it, you're okay. You're going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Difficult, yes. Stay prayerful, yes. But it's the Lord's battle. And have you ever seen God fight? Ooh, I have. I have all sorts of stories. One of my favorite is I was in the Philippines one time and I traveled to preach somewhere. And when I got there, they said, how'd you get here? I said, by bus, took 12 hours altogether. And they said, you shouldn't have come that route. Several Americans were killed in the last few weeks on that bus route. Oh, thank you. (laughs) But then the guy smiled and said, let me tell you how the Lord has protected us just like he protected you in our church This group of rebels, the NPO, has come several times in our village and threatened us. And they came to our church several weeks ago with guns during a church service and said, we're going to be back here next time, this week, same time this week, uh, next week. We want your money, whatever you own that's precious. We're going to be back to this building and we will either rob it or we'll kill you if you don't hand it over. They had been doing these kinds of activities in the area. Okay, That would be an interesting test, wouldn't it? 
Would you think when the following week came along and it was Sunday morning, I'm going to church today? Or would you say, yeah, that garage needs to be cleaned out today. (laughs) Get that stuff on eBay real quick. How many would show up for church? You'd show up to church with a gun. That's a true American right there. Well, let me tell you a better story than even that outcome. The church came that day. And it was packed. And they prayed. And they worshipped. And they began the church service. And they ended the church service in Jesus' name. And they went home rejoicing. And nobody showed up. And a few days later, they found out why. They were on their way, those rebels, in their jeeps with their guns. And they got in an accident. The jeeps, both of them overturned. They were all killed. God knows how to fight better than you or I. You know when the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I've discovered that God is a lot better at vengeance than even me. So I just can say, Lord, they're in your hands. You do what you need to do. That's the place to rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great projects have begun with small beginnings. Huge doors swing on small hinges. A man with a vision named Nehemiah who heard a report, decided to be mobilized and motivated, got the funding and went back home, and in the midst of attacks and discouragement, built a wall. Lord, I pray that our eyes would not be on rubbish tonight, but on the Redeemer. I pray for the rubbish, the, the stuff that's in our lives, all of the baggage that we carry. Some of it needs to be taken out, buried, and thrown away. You're wanting to do a new thing. Lord, revive our hearts. Renew us tonight. We trust you already have through the ministry of worship, special music, and the word. You're in our midst tonight, Lord, and we give you glory. And we pray for anybody who might be here tonight who doesn't know you. They need to come into a relationship with you. Change those hearts. And for those who are discouraged, Lord, strengthen those feeble knees and hands that hang down. And Lord, those who do indeed need counseling, we pray, Lord, you would provide the right godly men and women to rally around them and encourage them and strengthen them. In Jesus' name, amen.